Let's turn uh, in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2 this morning, Sunday morning, studying the book of Colossians in a series entitled, uh, Give Me Jesus. Uh, One additional reminder for those of you who might have come in a little bit late, we will be enjoying the Lord's Supper tonight as a part of our evening service and glad to be able to do that again. And uh, after a uh, separation of quite a few weeks now uh, related to that. We'll pick things up in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for many, as many, as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together. We thank you that there is a Bible uh, to be able to study, that you have provided it to us. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who comes alongside your word uh, to teach us in a way that we could never otherwise learn. And we pray that you would speak to us as a church as a whole and speak to us individually by your spirit and through your word this morning from these 10 verses. We pray that every intention uh, that these verses have for being in your Bible, every purpose that they would be spoken into by your spirit, into our relationship with you and into our Christian life. And we ask for this miracle in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You might remember that the Apostle Paul, as he uh, writes his letter to the church at Colossae, he is writing in order to expose and uh, correct a number of false doctrines that had uh, entered into the church uh, there. And, uh, And it was false doctrines that were, at this point in time, uh, largely in germ form, but that would uh, ultimately in the second century uh, formalize itself and become known as the heresy of Gnosticism. And the, the aspects of Gnosticism, uh, just excuse me a second, can somebody close that door for me in the back? Thank you. And the four major characteristics of Gnosticism Uh, and Paul brings them out here as he'll address them in chapter 2, is this, um, the idea that Christianity can be improved upon in some way, uh, whether by human philosophy or by legalism or by a false, uh, unbiblical uh, uh, mysticism, a pseudo-spiritualism, or uh, simply accommodating the flesh rather than uh, uh, resisting uh, the flesh or man's carnality uh, or sin. It's very important for us to understand as Christians that on these four issues that Paul uh, begins to address uh, formally here this morning and uh, will go through in the next four weeks, that these are very, very serious uh, issues. They constitute very serious attacks upon uh, Christianity uh, and what it is that Jesus was born into the world, 
lived in the world, taught, ministered, died on the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day, and ascended into heaven, went through all of that to introduce Christianity into the world, to introduce the kingdom of God. And uh, having invested all of that uh, of, of his life, the purposes of heaven in providing us with this thing called uh, the church, the body of Christ, Christianity, uh, that these things now come in and they want to uh, uh, harm what it is that he has at great expense to himself uh, provided to us. The reason that I mention it is that today we have to be careful as Christians because we're kind of like that frog, the proverbial frog that gets boiled in the water simply because the water is uh, uh, heated up slowly. And so we can become used to man's philosophy in all of its forms, being added to Christianity and not even blinking. Uh, we can just accept legalism as it's added to Christianity and say, yeah, they're a little legalistic over there. Or, yeah, they're very legalistic over there, but uh, whatever. And, uh, and uh, the false expressions of the Holy Spirit and spirituality, and we just kind of shrug. And we don't realize <clears throat> that these things not only misrepresent Christianity, the Christianity that Jesus died and, and rose again to provide to us, but they do serious damage uh, to that Christianity. And now at the start of chapter two, the apostle addresses and he starts to refute these errors uh, in earnest. And in verses one through 10, uh, Paul addresses the first of these three errors, and it is the idea, uh, the lie, the deceit, that Christianity, <clears throat> excuse me, can be, <clears throat> excuse me a moment. It's the lie or the idea that Christianity can be improved in any way uh, by human philosophy. That is man uh, originating uh, philosophy. Paul begins uh, this section of his letter by expressing in verses one through three to the church there uh, in Colossae his great conflict for uh, the Christians. And he expresses it there in verse one, his great conflict for those who had not seen his face in the flesh. And in this, Paul is communicating that while he had not been used by God to birth the church there and nurture the church in the city of Colossae, that he had never ever seen them face to face, nor they uh, him, that, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the allergies as always, so, but they, um, they had never seen his face, he had never seen them, but it didn't mean that his concern for them and their Christian life and, and spiritual experience was any less uh, than the concern and the love that he had for the Christians that were in the churches that he had personally established. And all of this introduction here in verse one, Paul is basically communicating the fact to them that he loved them and that he cared about them and he loved and cared about them as much as if they were his own direct and personal uh, disciples. And that uh, the coming correction that is going to occur now in earnest in chapter two uh, it wa was a product of his love for them, a product of his concern for them and uh, in the light of the great danger that these false teachers and false doctrines represented to them. And his love and his, his uh, concern extended to the church that had been started uh, under the, the uh, same circumstances, not very far away from the church of Laodicea, kind of a stone's throw away, uh, relatively speaking, uh, the same concern that he had for the church of Laodicea. This is a beautiful, one of the many, many pictures of how uh, a, a beautiful and mature uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, character is, as it's on display here. So often we think of Paul because 
you look at his life, you think about the brick walls he had to run through, the obstacles, uh, the opposition that he faced, the sheer uh, determination, the uh, un, uh, being uncompromising concerning uh, anything. And we can kind of uh, view him as this, uh, merely this great intellect of the early church and uh, very disciplined, very strong, uh, again, very determined and all. But if we fail to see that he was all of those things to be sure, but we fail to see that he was a deeply loving character uh, and person uh, in the body of Christ towards God people all the way through, then we'll pigeonhole in him a way that it isn't fair to him. He expressed his, his desire and his prayer for them in verse 2, that their hearts would be encouraged first of all, and biblically, uh, the Bible, when we talk about the heart in our culture, almost always we're talking solely of the emotion. But that's not how the word heart is used in the Bible. The word heart speaks of emotion, as it's uh, spoken of in the Bible, but it also speaks of the mind. It also speaks of uh, the will. It speaks of our thoughts and our uh, affections. And so it talks about the innermost part of our, our being. In other words, what he's about to say here to them uh, shouldn't be viewed by them as any kind of an attack on them at all. It's an effort on his part to strengthen their hearts, to encourage their faith, and to, in order that they might stand against the false teachers and false teaching that was um, now in, in their midst. He, he expressed his desire that their hearts may be knit together in love, and he encouraged them to unite together as a fellowship in love, knowing that uh, a loving church body, a unified church body, unified by love, makes it very hard for false teachers to make a dent in it and very f hard for false doctrine to get established uh, there. And uh, because when you are bringing in false doctrine and you're a false teacher and you're bringing it into something that's already healthy, you have to divide. You have to introduce discontent into people's hearts with what they have. You begin uh, uh, then to, to introduce uh, other doctrines here and uh, that have never been introduced before, starts to divide the body, and then you, the false teacher will usually make this new doctrine uh, a badge of spirituality so the body will split over who uh, believes this and who doesn't believe this. And when a body is loving, when a body's looking out for itself in that kind of a way, and this kind of false teacher or false doctrine uh, comes in, it will be so different in spirit. It will be so uh, unhealthily uh, jarring in its uh, impact upon, uh, upon that body that uh, uh, the church body will immediately be uh, shocked by it. Uh, there will be an aversion to what this is produced within, uh, within the body. And so a happy, loving fellowship is much harder for the devil to attack uh, than, than one that, that isn't, uh, isn't otherwise. He also, his desire, as he conti continues to lay it out in that verse, is that they would attain to all of the riches, all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both in the Father and of Christ. And here, uh, Paul does this continually through the letter. He co-ops the language of the Gnostics. He co-ops the language of the false teachers. And uh, uh, among the favorite words of the false teachers was knowledge, uh, secret knowledge, uh, mystery, wisdom, these kind of things. And uh, Paul is basically saying, if you want uh, to attain to real knowledge, uh, you want to uh, experience a mind-boggling uh, mystery, then dig into a proper understanding of Jesus Christ and of what God the Father has done uh, for us uh, in Him. And it is only a lack of uh, assurance and how rich and 
how complete we are uh, in Christ alone as Christians that makes uh, any Christian really vulnerable to false teachers. Once a person understands how uh, truly rich we are spiritually uh, in Christ, it will forever inoculate us uh, against any uh, thing that uh, any false thing that anyone else would try to come up with as an improvement upon Christianity, as an addition to anything that we already possess, and uh, with the idea that somehow that Christianity or Christ himself can be uh, topped in some way. Not even uh, the, the greatest religious imaginations of man could come, together, uh, come up with anything greater than what Christianity already is and come up with a Savior more perfect and greater than the Savior that Jesus uh, already uh, is. And he gives the reason for these desires that, uh, uh, for what he's saying here in verse 3. Uh, he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he, and he says, I'm telling you these things because in the Father and in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here again, the Apostle Paul co-ops the language uh, of, uh, of these false teachers. The Gnostics, again, they talked a lot about hidden things. They talked about secret uh, spiritual treasures and this kind of thing. And Paul is saying, don't waste your time on them. They are uh, all of these things uh, in their true form are found entirely in Christ and they're not available to some super spiritual, some super elect uh, Christian that all of this wisdom, all of this knowledge, all of this treasure is available uh, to any Christian by simply uh, uh, digging deeper into Jesus himself and what the scriptures have to say. That verse three is really staggering. And I remember hearing Gail Irwin teach on this in, uh, uh, in this very sanctuary many, many years ago in, uh, on Colossians chapter two. And he asked the question concerning verse three is how much is all? Well, all is all, and all wisdom and knowledge spiritually is found in Christ. And if it's all found in Christ, uh, then somebody else brings something else. Then it does not constitute true wisdom and true spiritual knowledge. I want to just stop for a moment and get us to... Uh, just consider the difference between knowledge and, and wisdom. Knowledge is the truth about something. And then wisdom provides us with what to do about that truth, how it applies uh, to life. And Jesus not only provides us with this uh, peerless uh, clarity and revelation concerning truth, uh, concerning what and how to think, but he also provides us with this peerless revelation and clarity uh, based upon how it is to, that we are to live. One of my favorite things in terms of just trying to deal with the world in which there's so much talking and talking and talking and empty talking going on, and the idea that somehow talking accomplishes something in and of itself. Uh, the one thing, I don't mind being in meetings with people as long as they accomplish something. But to be in meetings just to talk and talk and walk out of them and think that we did something uh, by talking about them is maddening to me. And Jesus declared... And in, in one of my favorite passages related to him, he said, but wisdom is justified by her children. Uh, wisdom is, is not true wisdom simply because it claims to be wisdom uh, or because the whole world declares it to be wisdom. Wisdom earns the right to be called wisdom uh, by virtue 
of the kind of human being it produces, the quality of culture it produces, the quality of society or nation or world uh, that, that it produces. And when you look all around the world, this God of the Bible is not just a speaking God, but what he says works in life. It is the solution. It is the wisdom. It is the knowledge for life. And you look all around the world, across all of the broad uh, diversity of mankind, across all of the broad diversity of cultures, and you watch the quality of individual human being that is produced by that, in that person who makes Jesus their Savior and their Lord and begins to now walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Word of God. And uniformly, it produces the most outstanding quality of life that a person can live in this world. Wisdom is justified by her children. Uh, that, it, it, uh, that wisdom is spoken, but it works in the nitty-gritty of life where the rubber uh, meets the road. You notice Paul's commendation of them there in verse 5. And commendation is always good when you're going to exhort uh, someone uh, ultimately. And Paul is simply uh, modeling here what was modeled for him by Jesus. When Jesus spoke, uh, wrote his seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he, uh, to each of them that he corrected, he, uh, he spoke a word of encouragement to them for what they were doing right before he got to their correction. Now, there were a couple of churches he couldn't find any good to say, but, that was, but try as he might. But that was, that was his, his uh, uh, method. And, uh, and it's a good methodology, whether uh, t- meeting with an employer and looking at their employer, employees or parents looking at children or whatever the relationship might be where we need to correct something, but then to affirm something that the person is doing right or uh, what is right in, in the situation. Paul wanted them to know that even though he had to correct them on some issues here, that uh, he didn't consider everything about the church uh, to be wrong. And so Paul has uh, broad brushes in his toolkit. He has fine brushes in his toolkits, and he uses them masterfully. And this kind of, uh, of uh, 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 skill, this kind of, uh, of speaking with that that kind of, of, of clarity, that kind of nuance is, is very much missing uh, today, but Paul uh, possessed it. You notice in verse 5 that he rejoiced to hear of their good order. He rejoiced uh, at the, their steadfastness of their faith in Jesus. So up to this point, uh, even though the false teaching has begun to infiltrate the church, by and large the church is staying faithful Uh, to the life and the teaching of Jesus. And then, so clearly, when Epaphras made that long, long journey, Epaphras started the church, birthed the church there in in Colossae. When he made that journey then to uh, Rome to talk with Paul, he didn't merely talk about the problems that were happening in the church at Colossae, but he brought uh, a broad report of it, a glowing report of what was going well there uh, as well. Paul's encouragements to the church here uh, in verses 6 and 7 are important. He tells them in verse 6 that as they had received Christ Jesus, so they were to walk in him. And how had they uh, received uh, Christ Jesus? Well, they had received him by faith. And, uh, and then putting their faith in him, they had been provided with a complete salvation. They had been provided with a perfect righteousness. They'd been provided with truth. They'd been provided with wisdom. They had been provided with the power to live uh, a godly life. They had been provided with the confidence and, uh, of, of everlasting uh, life. 
And so Paul says, stay there, stay uh, in that place. All of these things were received by uh, faith. You already possess them. Make those things uh, your uh, focus. And God has made all of those things, everything from being born again, everything from his wisdom and knowledge, everything from becoming a, a new creation, everything from the power of the Holy Spirit, everything about everlasting in our lives. He has made all of this a package of things that he has brought into our lives uh, simply by trusting uh, in Christ. And so God has made Christianity very, very simple. And he has made Christianity very, very simple uh, by design. And they were not to allow the false teachers to come in and, uh, and complicate uh, everything, no matter how convincing they might sound. He elaborates a little bit in verse 7, and he uh, speaks to them about being rooted and built up in Jesus and as a result being established uh, in the faith. So Paul uses agricultural language, talking about rooted. He uses language from building construction, talking about uh, being built up. And so it, it, what he, essentially what he's saying is, if you want to experience deep in your Christian life, uh, then put your roots down deep into Jesus, deep into his teaching, deep into your relationship with him, and then draw nourishment from that place, not from man's philosophies or, or man's wisdom, and then uh, drawing deeply from him and from that relationship, now uh, then build your life upon him. And to build your life upon something, the foundation being Christ, means that every portion of that building is going to be in relationship to the foundation. Build your life in such a way that every portion of your life is in relationship to the foundation that Jesus has provided to us as our Savior and as our Lord. And he tells them to do it just as Epaphras had already taught them. So this was, this was truth that they had already been taught. They were a well-taught congregation in this regard. And uh, so it would be double the tragedy for them having been well taught at some point in their Christian life to then now to be moved away from it. There's enough Christians in the world that have not been well taught that then get pulled into deception. That's its own tragedy. Uh, but the worst tragedy is to know better and then to get pulled into it. And Paul wanted them to know that they needed to be careful of this. And I think that what, uh, what Paul is communicating to them here with these teachers coming in and they're coming in with all of these new truths and you need all of these uh, new truths and revelations in order to really be spiritual. And uh, what Paul is telling them basically is that they didn't need any new truths. What they needed was new experiences in the old truths. And that is a, something that is profoundly true of so many restless Christians uh, today. Uh, the idea that uh, this staleness in my life or this whatever it might be is going to be resolved by finding some kind of a new truth. And then it makes me vulnerable for all kinds of false teaching. When my real need is I have ceased to uh, grow deeper in uh, the truths that are already in the scriptures and have been provided to me by God. Those are truths that will keep us not only busy and occupied, wonderfully so, for all of this life, but it will for all of the life to come. And then Paul told them they, they were to do this and to do it abounding uh, in, uh, with thanksgiving. And I think that very often we as Christians become vulnerable to false teaching because we have ceased to be thankful for uh, the great truths and the uh, indescribable realities that are already ours. Uh, as Christians that we already uh, possess and, and we need to be alert to that. 
these incredible things that are ours as Christians, these things that have been provided to us, these truths that have been revealed to us are things that ought to produce awe within our lives uh, for the rest of our lives, every day uh, uh, of our, uh, our lives. And the problem is, is that over the long haul, we can begin to lose our awe over things we should never lose our awe over. And one of the things that protects that from happening in our lives is to be thankful for those things. To just take as an exercise. So often when we pray, our prayers are utterly dominated by petition. Nothing wrong with asking God for things and needs related to our life. Nothing at all. God invites us to do that. But it isn't the sole uh, aspect of prayer or reason that prayer exists. And to take time to uh, just thank the Lord in prayer. Just take five minutes uh, out of my life and sit down and say, I'm going to thank God for what he has uh, blessed me with in Christ. I'm going to thank him for what he has provided to me in my Savior and to begin to thank him for that. Thank you for being born again. Thank you that I'm a new creation. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for everlasting life. And on and on and on uh, the list goes. Any of us can fill uh, five minutes of time with that. But but it's even good to engage in that if we endeavor to do it and after 20 seconds we can't think of anything because it would reveal about us as a Christian that we are too shallow in our understanding and our consciousness of these amazing things that God has provided to us in Christ. And uh, to refresh then in thanksgiving with those things, and it sets up a tremendous inoculation against false uh, teaching. I mean, when you, uh, uh, when we maintain that thankfulness within our lives, then, and, and thankful for things that are real and things that are majestic, uh, then we will never be vulnerable to all of the various theories and philosophies and winds of doctrine that go through Christendom and through the body of Christ uh, continually. And thankfulness, uh, abounding thankfulness, is a profound protection uh, against error in our lives. Paul then, in verses 4 and 8, he really narrows down now on this teaching of of these Gnostics. And uh, he focuses on the first of these great threats of of the false teachers, and that is the idea that Christianity can be improved uh, by virtue of human philosophy. And so uh, he he has stated all of these incredible truths about uh, Jesus and about who he is and, and what he's done for us, He speaks of all of these things for a reason, in order that it might protect uh, them and us from those who would try to come along and deceive us, as he puts it in verse 4, with persuasive words. Now, there's nothing wrong with being persuasive as a speaker. Uh, Every speaker should endeavor to be persuasive. The Apostle Paul always endeavored to be persuasive in his speaking. And he was a master of it. When he would go into these various synagogues, he would reason with the idea of persuading. He would reason with them from the Scriptures. He would uh, reason with them toward a decision, uh, making a decision for Christ and receiving Him. Nothing wrong with persuasion at all. And every Bible teacher, uh, uh, all of us desire to have this characterize our, uh, our, our teaching. What he's talking about here is this, uh, this persuasion, this persuasive words. Uh, he's talking about it in the context of uh, false teachers who seek to persuade not from the Scriptures, but in violation of the truth of the Scriptures. 
And in this regard, I think it's important that we never allow uh, persuasiveness in and of itself that we never allow uh, the, the uh, speaker uh, or, or the natural charisma of the speaker to cause us to cease testing what it is that he or she is saying by the Word of God. Uh, the substance of what is being said is always way more important than the style in this regard. There's the old joke of uh, the uh, teacher or the pastor who was going through his notes on a Sunday morning before he went to church in order to uh, teach his sermon. And as he's reading through the notes, he came to a point in it in his notes, and he wrote into the mar- he wrote in the margin, uh, "This is a weak point. Shout." And uh, there's a lot of truth to that that can happen in communication. You shout your way through uh, your weak points, and people are so amazed by uh, the shouting or amazed by what is apparent conviction, they lose sight of the weakness of the point that is being uh, uh, presented. Oftentimes a false teacher will quote many, many verses from the Bible. And they'll have you turn to this verse, and to this verse, and to this verse, and to uh, uh, that verse, and to give the impression that what it is that they're teaching is uh, biblical. But the, 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 the passages are being used out of their context. The verses uh, are, are, are not speaking to the, the point that they're trying to make. And the reason that people will use that, just one verse after the other, is because they know, by and large, as Christians, we will drop our guard. If somebody has quoted six verses to us on a particular subject, ah, then whatever he says next uh, must be biblical, and it may not be. It must be uh, not only the verses are biblical, of course, but the teaching has to be in, in line with that. It's also important to realize that false teachers are often very, very willing to speak 90% truth in what it is that they're declaring in order to advance uh, 10% of a lie uh, in their message and to get the audience to believe it. It's also important to realize that many false teachers are completely convinced of the lie that they are teaching. Now, there are many false teachers that know that what they're teaching is bogus. This is just a money-making operation that they're involved in. But many, many false teachers are absolutely convinced of the lie or the false doctrine uh, that they are uh, advancing uh, to us. And so they will then deliver uh, their message and their teaching with great passion, with great conviction, with great uh, sincerity and, uh, and, and uh, convinced, uh, fully convinced in their mind that they are doing you good by what it is that they are, are preaching to you. And, uh, and passion and conviction and sincerity uh, in a speaker, they're all wonderful, but they are not the ultimate test. What is being said by the speaker is always the ultimate test uh, for the speaker. And I think this is so important for us to understand in our culture because in our culture, we are so wowed by passion We are so wowed by uh, sincerity. Our culture is what they call postmodern, where people don't think linear. They don't think with their mind. They think with their hearts. And if somebody is passionate enough uh, and uh, and, uh, uh, sincere enough in what what they're saying, then people uh, wanting or or only trained to be an emotional here will take and believe what it is that's being said uh, on the basis of that passion, on the basis of that sincerity, rather on the basis of the message that is being spoken and the rationale, the biblical rationale, of that message. 
And of course, I think Ravi Zacharias, uh, now in heaven, but he had the, the great quote on this concerning today's younger generations. But it isn't just them. It's everyone who's being fashioned by the culture. And he said, how do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? And that is a generation or a people or a Christian who is absolutely set up to be deceived uh, by these kind of teachers. And so it's important for us to realize that a person can be completely sincere in what they're saying and uh, yet sincerely wrong. I think the classic example of this kind of thing today, or one, at least one example of it, something that sounds uh, very, very convincing, uh, very persuasive, but it is unbiblical, uh, is what the extension of the self-esteem movement uh, that came on the, on the scene so strong uh, several decades ago and then uh, started to infiltrate Christianity as well. And uh, this particular example of, of handling this passage, I think, is probably remains entrenched today. But it goes something like this. A Pharisee came up to Jesus, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. And he asked Jesus a question. He said, Master, what is the, the single greatest uh, commandment in the law? And uh, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments uh, hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus could hardly be any plainer than he was. Commandment number one, commandment number two, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. There isn't a third commandment to be found in the entire uh, passage. But the self-esteem movement came along, and with persuasive words, uh, they reasoned, well, Jesus said that we're to love our neighbor as ourself, but what if I don't really love myself? And uh, so in order for me to learn to love my neighbor as myself, uh, first I need to learn to love myself. And, and yet, uh, that is to add a third commandment to what Jesus has, has spoken here, and that it's not at all what Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching not that we needed to learn, uh, learn to love ourselves, but that we were to love our neighbors in the way that we already love ourselves. And one of the many problems with adding this third commandment uh, and, and uh, persuasively put forth by so many and believed by so many is that uh, uh, where I have to learn to love myself in order to love others is that it will gobble up every portion of my life. It will take all of my life will be centered on uh, learning to love myself until finally there is no time left at all to actually obey the two commandments that are legitimate. And again, it's an example of the kind of thing that happens in, in the handling of the scriptures today. And again, Paul is talking about things that sound reasonable. They, uh, they seem uh, persuasive on the surface, but they fail the test of scriptures. Uh, he also warned them to beware lest anyone should cheat them and to cheat them uh, through philosophy. And philosophy is made up of two Greek words that, and it speaks of uh, the love of wisdom. A philosopher is someone who is a lover uh, of, of wisdom. And Paul here is not uh, condemning a search for wisdom in life or a love of wisdom in life. He is speaking of wisdom that is purely human uh, in its origin, and it violates the truth that is found in the Bible, the truth that is found 
in Christ. And, and Paul is saying, uh, philosophy that has human origin, wisdom that has a purely human origin, it has nothing to add to Christianity. And I, I like how uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee uh, kind of encapsulated this portion of things. He wrote, a true philosopher is a seeker after truth. But truth is not found in human wisdom. And that's the point exactly that Paul is making. He warns us against being deceived through uh, empty deceit as well. Phillips' translation puts it uh, high-sounding nonsense. It's uh, just... Uh, just a bunch of spiritual talk and words that make everybody uh, feel good and, and, and all, uh, but it's nonsense. Once again, uh, it, it cannot hold up under the nitty-gritty of the demands of a human being living, living in this, this fallen uh, world. He talks about uh, 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 avoiding these things, being aware of these things that are according to the tradition of men. And this refers to uh, religious teachings that are the product uh, of merely human speculation about God or teachings that have been invented by men and they have no foundation uh, into the script, in the scriptures at all. They come out of the minds of men and women and he calls them traditions because uh, they have been in existence for so long. Their legitimacy is not found in the fact that there is a biblical foundation for practicing them. Their legitimacy, they claim, is because uh, these th what they have been teaching, they are teaching, has been around and practiced for so long. And, and this is where you, I don't have the time to do it today, but it, where uh, if you come out of Roman Catholicism or you come out of some version of Orthodox faith and you just look at what's presented to you in terms of garb, in terms of practice, in terms of methodologies, in terms of teaching, and you ask yourself, where is that in the Bible? And it isn't in the Bible. And these are the kind of things that the Apostle Paul is saying uh, Christianity cannot be improved by. Christianity can only be marred by these man-made traditions and these man-made speculations uh, about uh, God. But it also includes the kind of person who uh, attempts to figure out uh, by his own uh, uh, intellect and uh, uh, what can only be known by divine revelation. It's the kind of person who rejects what is in the Bible. And many, many Gnostics did. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. Uh, they weren't just trying to add something to the Bible. They were also explaining away things that were a part of the Christian faith. And it speaks of the kind of person who uh, rejects uh, aspects of Christianity uh, because they exalt human uh, intellect above the revelation of God in Scripture. And this kind of thing just simply abounds uh, all around us today. Those who uh, will not accept the supernatural events and miracles uh, that are found uh, recorded in the Bible uh, because man is incapable of accomplishing those same uh, miracles. And this group is not uh, new in human history. In the ancient world at the time of Jesus, they were known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were very, very wealthy by and large. They were very powerful, very well educated. But their theology, their belief system was they, they were the religious liberals or the modernists of, of their day. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. 
And so they didn't believe in uh, the existence of angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They questioned uh, the immortality of the soul. They questioned the idea of life uh, after death. They were the rationalists of their day. They were the materialists of their day. They wanted to be religious on some level, but without having to believe anything uh, supernatural. So if it couldn't be explained by natural law, then they simply rejected it. If they couldn't feel it, if they couldn't hear it, uh, if they couldn't uh, touch it or smell it, or most importantly of all, if they could not fully understand it intellectually, uh, if it could not fit within the confines of their minds, uh, then they rejected it. And all of that sounds very sophisticated. It all sounds very, very enlightened and intellectual. But it's not. Because the simple fact of the matter is that such a person is essentially engaged in the worship of their mind. They are not looking to worship God or anything that is greater than them. They are engaged in the worship of their own mind and as a result of it, the worship of the limitations of their mind. The fact of the matter is that uh, each of our minds and as a result, our understandings uh, are, is, uh, in life are very finite. They are very, very uh, limited indeed. If I can understand something, that means that uh, that something is smaller than my mind. And by virtue of that fact, it is smaller than me, which in turn then makes that something or that someone unworthy of my worship. Because why would I worship something that is smaller than myself? And, that, and that's what happens in this whole rejection of the supernatural of the Bible and the supernatural of, of the Christian uh, uh, life. If I could understand every, anything, then it's smaller than my mind and thus smaller than me. And as the old saying goes, uh, a God that is small enough to understand is not a God who is big enough to worship. And that's the choice that, that uh, we face uh, with. And the Gnostics decide to go toward man rather than accepting uh, mystery in, in a relationship with God. And so what the Sadducee or the theological liberal both then and now uh, has to come to face is that if I'm going to worship, again, that's something that, is, that I can understand fully, then it's less than me and unworthy of my worship. And they also have to understand that any time you have the finite human beings in relationship with the infinite, that is God, then you're going to have to get used to mystery because we can only track with him uh, so far on any subject of his choosing and where our minds stop at the vanishing point, uh, his mind goes on infinitely concerning those same uh, subjects. And of course, this uh, group exists today and uh, in terms of, of uh, Christianity or, or uh, Protestant, it would be the mainline Protestant denominations, the liberal uh, theologians today and who deny Jesus' incarnation. They deny his virgin birth. They deny his deity. They deny his bodily resurrection. They deny his miracles. Indeed, they deny all of the miracles uh, in the Bible. They divine the, uh, deny the divine inspiration of Scripture. They deny the need to be born again. Uh, they deny faith in Jesus as the only means by which we can be saved. And Jesus had a very, very simple comment to make to the Sadducees 2,000 years ago and the Sadducees that exist even to this day. And the question that he posed to them is in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. He, uh, the statement that he made to them, rather, he said, you do err for two reasons. You do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Just because you can't do something doesn't mean God can't do it. 
And just because you don't fully understand something doesn't mean that God doesn't fully understand it. The Apostle Paul, I mean, he readily accepted uh, mystery and the necessity of a man's relationship with an infinite God. In fact, he rejoiced in the fact of it in 1 Timothy 3.16, and he said, without controversy, you'll get no argument from me on this issue. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, speaking of Jesus' incarnation, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And Paul uh, talked as, as he continues his rejection of these things that wanted to introduce themselves and warns against them into Christianity. He talks about that which is according to the basic principles of the world and as a result, thus not according to Christ. It disregards Jesus' life and it disregards his teaching. In other words, anyone who wants to find spiritual depth, wisdom, knowledge, in these things from man, man's philosophy, you're only going to end up cheated and deceived. And then Paul closes in verses 9 and 10 with just another uh, just magnificent section of uh, declarations concerning Jesus. Verse 9, in him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead uh, bodily. In Christ, all of the fullness of deity uh, lives. And so, how can you find a greater spiritual fullness somewhere else when that fullness lies entirely in him. He tells us in verse 10 that you are complete in him. Uh, when you are spiritually complete, of course, you, then nothing can be improved upon. Uh, man's wisdom can add nothing to you. And then he declares uh, in verse 10 that he is uh, the head of all principality and powers, speaking about the angelic realm. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, the Gnostics were very much into the worship of angels. And Paul is saying, Jesus created the angels. Jesus is sovereign over the angels. Why would I worship angels when I have him to worship the one who is uh, uh, the head of all principalities and uh, power. William Shakespeare, and it's a quote that comes to my mind when, when, always when we come to passages like this today. And he wrote in one of his works, man, proud man, how ignorant of what he is most assured. Man, proud man, how ignorant of what uh, he is most assured. That line is, is, is also uh, translated, so to speak, man, proud man, so ignorant in that which he knows best. Man, poor man, so ignorant even in what man knows best. And never is his ignorance on a fuller display than when man attempts to improve Christianity as it is described in the Scriptures. It, 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 to do so, to attempt to do so, is just a blind, proud folly. Man's philosophies, his traditions, his wisdom has nothing to offer Christianity. And that message is as important today as ever it was in Colossae 2,000 years ago, and maybe more important today for Christians living in this culture of the United States of America than ever it was to Colossae 2,000 years ago. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the strength of your word in this regard. 
And it speaks to us of how dangerous this kind of thing is to your people, to you being properly represented in the world, to the body of Christ, to this thing called Christianity, the family uh, of God that you have brought into existence through the death and burial and resurrection of your Son. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for this reminder. And we thank you for our experience as Christians as we have grown in our Christian life and grown into uh, uh, our knowledge of the Scriptures, it has caused us to realize, and like never before, that there is nothing, uh, even nothing among the philosophy of man, the musings of man, the conjectures of man, the thoughts of man, that even remotely approaches the wisdom and the quality of life that is found in uh, Christianity as we have it in our Savior and in our Lord and as it's uh, described in the Scriptures. And this morning we close, Father, by thanking you for this Christianity, the price that was paid to provide it to us. And we thank you this morning for our Savior. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.